Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Farm Traveler. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. Thanks to -to direct-to-consumer businesses and the rise of agritourism and even social media, it's never been easier for consumers to connect with those producing their food. So here on the Farm Traveler Podcast, we want to connect you with businesses offering direct-to-consumer products that you can try at home, agritourism sites you can visit with your family, and exciting new technologies that are changing how your food is being grown. This week, we're talking about an intriguing technology in the agriculture and food science space, cultured meat, aka real meat but made in a lab. A startup advisor, author, and podcast host who has a deep understanding of cell-cultured meat, So our guest today is Alex Shirazi. Alex has advised many startup businesses, some of which are seeking to develop new cultured meat technologies. He's also built the Cultured Meat Symposium, which is aimed at bringing together leaders in the cell cultured meat world. Alex also, as if he's not busy already, Alex also co-wrote a book titled Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? which is a kid's book about cellular agriculture and the future of meat production. In our interview, Alex and I will chat about his background, the processes of making cultured meat, if it's technology that will replace normal meat, or if it's just another choice for consumers. We'll also dive deep into how taste and texture are extremely important when developing these sorts of meats, and how meat proteins and fats are created differently. I went into this episode knowing very, very little about this technology, but learned a lot thanks to Alex, and I think you will too. When you're done listening, be sure to check out Alex's book, Where Do Hot Dogs Come From?, as well as his podcast, The Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast, all of which will be linked in the description of this episode, and enjoy the interview. All right, well, Alex Shirazi, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and uh, it's great to be here. So we met on Twitter. I I kind of tweeted out, I was like, hey... I want to interview somebody about cultured meat. I know nothing. I need an expert. I think somebody suggested you and then we chatted back and forth and now we're finally having this interview. And so I'm excited to learn from you 
about cultured meat. I mean, you seem like an expert in the field. You've got a, uh, a podcast. You've got a children's book, which is awesome. So kind of before we learn about cultured meat, tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you wound up, you know, kind of an expert on cultured meat and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if I would be the expert, but I've certainly interviewed a lot of experts. Um, so maybe that gives me some credibility. <laughs> but um, I have a background actually in software and graphic design. And uh, over the last, uh, I guess, 10 years or so now, uh, have always been working on different startup ideas and things like that. Uh, usually never in the food space, but um, it was, I guess, late 2016, early 2017, I started getting together with some friends and we would meet maybe on a monthly basis and really just start executing different ideas, ideas that we thought were cool, startup ideas. And, you know, sometimes they were software based, sometimes um, they were mechanical. Uh, like, for example, we created this device that was like a uh, um, DIY sous vide machine that turns a $10 crock pot into like a $200 sous vide machine. So um, we experimented with a lot of different things. And and one day someone um, new joined our group, uh, Anita, and uh, she had kind of a background in biotech and also had been vegan for a very long time. And she brought the idea of cultured meat to our group. And all of us got like super excited. And the first thing we thought of is like, okay, the next idea that we're going to pursue is to start a cultured meat company. Mm. Um, and uh, what ended up happening was that we took a step back and said, okay, before we start a cultured meat company, let's kind of interview people in the space, see if, um, see if there is something to explore, maybe something that's untapped. And what we ended up finding was that the, uh, the kind of this industry that was starting to grow uh, was was really welcoming and uh, and and really open, and so that's kind of how I first learned and kind of got into cultured meat. That's awesome. And so there, it it really seems like there's three different types of meat now. You know, you've got regular animal based meat, then you've got plant based meat. You know, things like Impossible Burger, Beyond Burger, and all that stuff, and then you've got cultured meat, which is actual animal meat derived from animals, but not really from animals, for example. And like, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes some of the process, you, you can like collect the blood from like a cow, for example, and then you grow it in a certain environment and then it kind of grows from there. So it's animal meat, kind of. So kind of explain, I guess, what cultured meat is and how the process we go about from actually having cultured meat. Yeah, absolutely. I think first it's important to kind of look at what meat is in, in general. And, and, you know, meat is usually a mixture of muscle and, and fat. And so kind of like the process you described to make cultured meat, you would take a sample of muscle or you would take a, a sample of fat uh, and then you would grow that sample to the point where you can actually turn it into a size that would be considered you know, um, uh, meat, right? Whether you're talking about steak or a chicken breast or chicken nugget or whatever it may be. And it seems very simplified when you say it like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the, you know, the steps are, you know, still very simplified, but the steps are kind of like, you know, having that biopsy or that initial cell or cell line, and then uh, kind of 
turning that into something that grows. And then once it does grow, or I guess multiply, then you want to make sure it multiplies in mass. And so you really need, you know, many, many cells to, to turn it into something that we can eat. Uh, and then eventually that gets, you know, maybe mixed with other um, food grade ingredients to turn into what would look like a cultured chicken nugget, which you might have seen on the news lately. That's true. And so what does this kind of look like on a large scale? I mean, it seems like this is very tough to do, obviously, in a small scale, but like, how is it how is it going to scale up to where we can do this? You know, if you want a cultured burger, you can go to the grocery store. So what does that process kind of look like? So the process actually doesn't look too much different than some of the existing uh, food grade uh uh, manufacturing processes that are available. And so if you, if you look at, for example, um, how we do make large amounts of any food, there's usually kind of a, a larger, let's say factory type of setting mm -hmm. where, um, there are different tanks, different ingredients, all going into different places to end up kind of coming out to this final result that may either need to be dried or purified or, or whatever it may be. And I think that is one reason why a lot of people use the example of beer brewing uh, quite mm. often when they're talking about cultured meat, because you start with something small uh, and then that either produces something else or grows in a different way to the point where you kind of grow it in large scale in a controlled environment. And when we're talking about beer, you know, the yeast makes the alcohol that grows and, and over the course of the fermentation process, you end up having large amounts of beer in pretty large tanks that end up getting canned and then sent over to the grocery store. Will it be a direct one-to-one -one for cultured meat? Probably not. We've already started to see that the process is going to be, you know, fairly different, not only from like an energy consumption or kind of a facility standpoint, uh, but we're seeing companies actually kind of do it. And uh, one company, Upside Foods, has recently opened a pretty big, I would say, uh, maybe pilot plan. Maybe they're calling it a commercial plant, um, but it's essentially a, a, a space the size of a grocery store. And they gave mm. a pretty nice tour of this new space. It's in Emeryville, California, so the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, you'll see that instead of, you know, one very large two, three story tank, like you might see in, uh, you know, driving past a, a, a Budweiser uh, facility, uh, it was uh, different smaller tanks, but they had a really nice kind of overview of, you know, this is where we grow the cells. This is where we kind of prepare the um, the packaging, and this is actually where it goes into tasting or the commercial, or not commercial, but just the kitchen, kitchen or whatever it may be. And so it's, you know, if you look at it at a large scale or from a consumer standpoint, uh, growing cultured meat and getting it ready for the grocery store isn't or shouldn't be too much different than some of the other foods that you see going into the grocery store. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, bringing up the whole kind of the beer brewing thing really makes it hit home. Like I really understand that how, I mean, you've got a lot of ingredients, you're fermenting and all that stuff and how it really would look in the processing side of things. And so you kind of mentioned this earlier, like let's say you're going to make a chicken breast and then a chicken nugget. Like, are you going to use the same cultured meat and then divide it up and then process it kind of differently, add different ingredients so it looks like those separate products? Yeah, I would say, you know, maybe um, if you look at it, uh, you know, when you're looking at cultured meat, maybe a chicken nugget or a chicken breast would would pretty much be the same process. But maybe a, a better example to look at is maybe uh, uh, something like a steak, which is a lot more structured. Uh, even a chicken breast can, al although it is structured in its own way, 
um, is still kind of like that larger kind of uh, piece, right? right so yeah. a large chicken nugget, if it wasn't breaded, might look like a, a chicken breast. Uh, but when we're looking at steak, um, there's kind of different uh, fat tissues going in different places. It has a particular shape, you know, in, in, in animal and traditional animal agriculture, sometimes, you know, we have bone in products. And so um, I would say that the overall process of creating actual cells uh, will be the same. But it's that kind of later stage where it's kind of transformed into that end product will be different. And a lot of companies are, are, are working on this and a, a lot of them are doing different things. Uh, some are even doing 3D printing technologies or 3D bioprinting to create that stake, for example. So, yeah, that's something I definitely want to talk about. I always think that 3D printing foods is interesting because I'm just imagining in like 40 or 50 years, if you want a Wagyu steak, you can print it at your 3D printer at home. And I think technology like this with cultured meat, you're going to be able to do that. I mean, do you think that's going to be something not so far off in the future? You know, I, I, I love to kind of think like that in a futuristic way. Um, and I'm not going to lie, I've, I've asked some of the podcast guests um, that exact same question. And usually the response is, well, we have bread makers, but do you use a bread maker to make bread at home? <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I, growing up, I actually, you know, we did have a bread maker, but we rarely used it. Um, I would say that it's not completely out of the, the picture, but I would say that would actually be a little bit more like, uh, those who make uh, craft beers at home, right? Mm. There'll be a select few that are really into the the science and technology. Uh, maybe we could see the same thing happening here for for meat. Um, but I think what's more realistic, especially when we're looking at the amount of resources and overall kind of cost of everything, we'll probably see um, uh, it'll be easier to kind of get it at the at the grocery store. Uh, but so I wouldn't say that you know it's not impossible. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it'll be not like a throwaway item, like an air fryer or an Instapot or something like that. It'll be kind of more specialized, like home brewing. I like that. Well, where you'll have people that can kind of dedicate to, I don't know, printing different meats and cooking it for a certain time until they can mimic that texture, which speaking of the texture, because I know that's something that um, like plant-based meats really struggle with. Like I've had the Impossible Burger and it's really close to a beef burger, but you can still kind of tell. And so if you've tasted cultured meat before, like, is it really close to kind of being very similar to like actual texture of real animal meat? So I would say, so I've, I've tried cultured meat products um, uh, from a couple different companies. And I would say that um, at this stage, um, every kind of piece that is being offered is kind of, you know, curated in a pretty special way, mm. um, such that if you go to a restaurant where somebody is preparing even meat in a, in a certain way, you're going to have those different experiences. Um, but what I can say is, I guess, one thing that's important to note is that uh, a lot of these products, probably when they're going to be going to market and also in the tastings, uh, they might not necessarily be like 100% cell cultured, you know, muscle and fat cells. Um, just like you have any type of sausage product or even a burger product, there are other ingredients that are mixed into it that give it different textures and flavors and things like that. Um, but I would say that if you compare it to plant-based, um, you'll probably really have more of, of a meaty texture, right? Because you're actually eating those, those muscle cells. And so that'll be a lot closer. Um, but I think it, it'll be, you know, more than just that texture that, that will need you, that, that'll need to get you there. Um, and, uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that as well. 
Yeah, I mean, that's something I'm curious about too. Um, like what stage are they at now in terms of processing it and kind of developing it? Is it more along the lines of just making it more efficient or is it kind of focusing more on the texture and making sure the nutrients are all there? Or is it kind of a mix of both? I think that most of the companies at this stage know that um, once they are able to get to a larger scale, that texture and flavor is not going to be as big of a problem. Mm. And I think um, I'm saying that because we're seeing that even on the plant-based side of things, we're able to achieve pretty high quality. Again, it's not going to be the same exact experience as like, you know, going to a steakhouse or having a a pretty high quality burger. Uh, But they're able to kind of, you know, adjust that to a point where uh, somebody would be able to say, oh, this is really meat. Uh, But I would say that the, the, the stage that most companies that are a little bit further along are at this point is being able to scale and mm. ha- really have uh, efficiency in this type of scale. And so when we look at, I guess, um, you know, pilot scale or commercial scale, um, this is something that requires lots of energy, lots of equipment, a lot of equipment that today is only used for the pharmaceutical industry, which means that to get to kind of a food grade level, um, maybe new equipment needs to be made. So we're seeing teams with mechanical engineers, new fabrication of different tanks and bioreactors and different kinds of things like that. So this is clearly a super duper difficult to understand topic, very complicated, a lot of science going in there. But I mean, on top of that, you co-wrote a children's book, which kind of simplifi- simplifies the whole process. And it's called um, Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? And so what was the whole process about that, like taking this very complicated idea and then putting it into a book, which the reviews seem like it's been phenomenal and kids are really loving it and learning from it. So what was that whole process like? Well, I think, you know, it really stemmed from the idea that we would go to the scientific conferences and um, the presenters, presenters would really say that, you know, with the research that we're doing today, we can see that maybe in the next 10 to 15 years, that this product would be more widely available, right? Mm. And so we thought, okay, in the next 10 to 15 years, who's going to be a big spender of food products? And what we see in the food space is that category of um, kind of teenagers to young adults are really big spenders on, on food products, especially new food products. And so if you look at the children of today, anywhere between age three to seven, where are they going to be in the next you know, 10 to 15 years? They're going to be making these food choices. And so we wanted to be able to create a book that simplifies the ideas of cultured meat and really opens up the, the idea that you can have meat that doesn't necessarily need to come from slaughter. And, uh, and so far, it's been you know quite interesting. We did want to kind of poke at those who are very against this technology. And so the title is, where do hot dogs come from? Something that nobody really wants to know the answer to. (laughs) Um, But what you'll see in the book is that, you know, we don't actually talk about where hot dogs come from. We look into this kind of futuristic uh, world where this technology is available. Yeah, that's very interesting, that viewpoint of some people don't like cultured meat. And I mean, I feel like there's definitely a mix of people that don't like it, just like there's a mix of people that don't like animal protein and stuff like that. So, I mean, normal, traditional animal protein that requires slaughter and processing all that. Do you see cultured meat as an eventual replacement for that? Or do you see it as another product 
um, that consumers can have at the store in addition to things like plant-based proteins? Yeah, I think this is a, a, a good uh, question. And I think it's also an interesting topic uh, because uh, like you said, there are people that are have strong feelings about it. And so to answer your question directly, I would say that, you know, Right now, we are seeing that the demand for meat is is going up quite a bit. And Mm -hmm. so uh, at this stage, what I believe is that new technologies, whether it's plant-based or cultured meat or other technologies to create meat or meat-like products, are going to start emerging and going into the market, uh, displacing some of this need. But we'll also see that the need for traditional animal agriculture uh, will reduce a little bit. And I think that we're starting to see that with consumer trends, especially of the kind of millennial or Gen Z with decision making for choosing chicken over beef because it's a little bit more sustainable. So do I think traditional animal agriculture will go away completely? No. But uh, do I think that uh, maybe large scale animal agriculture could be displaced with one of these new technologies? I definitely think that's an option. Yeah, it's very interesting to see where this will go. I mean, I think some things like I saw Impossible Burger, they were at, I think, some trade show. I think it was CES, a consumer electronic showcase or something. And they had a banner and it said, Impossible Burger, our goal is to completely remove animal protein from the face of the earth. And I was like, "Mm." like, I don't know. Like, I feel like there's always, even if cultured meat gets to eventually kind of be like the go-to and then plant-based proteins, I feel like there's always going to be some sort of audience for traditional animal protein. And I mean, I feel like in a perfect world, all three can kind of, I don't know, enjoy the market space, enjoy different customers and stuff like that. I mean, I feel like all three definitely have their strengths and weaknesses. And so it'll be interesting to see how both, or I guess all the industries and then all their supporters kind of go on and kind of, I don't know, maybe change their ideas and stuff like that. That's going to be very interesting. I would say, you know, if if I was a little bit more of an activist or environmentalist, I would say, you know, well, look at the latest reports, like we must be able to do something drastic or, you know, the the world is getting hotter by so many degrees by certain, you know, by a certain year. And I, you know, I I believe that. and, And that's definitely true. We need to make shifts. We need to make changes. Uh, will there be something that comes along that is so drastic that, you know, we will have to remove all, any reliance on animal agriculture? I, I still haven't seen that, right? Um, and even today, you know, most people that are consuming meat, they're not going out of their way to seek maybe the highest quality meat. And mm-hmm. so if we can at least displace those, the people that are just looking to get any type of ground beef, for example, with something like Impossible or other products, I think that's a huge win. But just like as today, we have those that are going out to seek maybe some sort of high quality Wagyu or other types of, of beef will probably in the future, even if cultured meat or plant-based meat does get a really large market share, we'll probably still see people that go out of their way to have uh, meat derived from you know tr- what we would call today traditional animal agriculture. Yeah, exactly. And so I, it seems like you've kind of built this huge, uh, well, you have the symposium, the culture meat symposium, and it seems like build community around that. So what's that experience been like? So when we first kind of got the idea to, to start a podcast, uh, we ended up uh, hosting an event in, in San Francisco. And I think this was uh, early 2018. And, you know, what was an event that we thought maybe, you know, 10 people or so would, would show up uh, was a room full of 80 people really interested in learning more about this technology. 
And that's when, you know, some of the folks kind of, you know, inched at kind of creating a, a larger event. And, and so uh, we, we did that. And so we created the Cultured Meat Symposium in, in 2018. At the time, there had only been a few uh, conferences that were out there, one in the Netherlands uh, that was very science heavy, uh, and then another one on the East Coast, um, which was uh, run by an organization called New Harvest, which is has really been kind of the leader in the space since the, the early uh, 2000s. And so when we had the, these like 80 folks show up, we thought, okay, there, there is a fit here. We can definitely learn more. And we ended up creating a, a company that had one goal of uh, bringing traditional Silicon Valley, because we're in San Francisco and the Bay mm-hmm. Area, bringing traditional Silicon Valley tech money to next-gen food technologies. And so uh, we saw a lot of money going into technologies like AR and VR at the time, and uh, and we wanted to have a portion of that really convince the investors, traditional investors of Sand Hill Road, to put money into these new food technologies. And I will say that you know since then, we have seen a tremendous amount of money go into this space, uh, but we haven't seen too much money from traditional VCs go into cell cultured meat specifically. Um, and so I think that um, the overall experience has been pretty wild because year over year, we're seeing a crazy amount of growth and interest from the number of companies that are in the space to those who want to, you know, larger companies or incumbents that want to get involved. And uh, and I think it's just going to go up from from here. So going off that a little bit, do you think that kind of cultured meat is just slightly behind plant-based proteins? Because I feel like there's this huge push years ago to where people were slowly doing it and then all this venture capital poured into plant-based proteins. So do you think cultured meat is just slightly behind um, animal-based proteins there? So I would say that, um, I guess two things. One is that they are very different technologies, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A lot of what's going into plant-based uh, we have the manufacturing at scale, uh, at least more so compared to cell cultured meat. Uh, and then the other thing is that um, when we're probably going to be seeing these cell cultured meat products go to market, advancements in plant-based technologies or, or creating plant-based meats, especially when you're talking about mimicry, will definitely help what's going on in the cell cultured meat world because we're probably more likely to see a, a mix of products. So. Um, you know, again, not a hundred percent cell cultured product, but imagine impossible burger where maybe 20 or 40% of that ground beef is going to contain cell cultured meat. Now impossible has gone out to say they don't really, um, really like the, the cell cultured meat technology, uh, and they want to be 100% animal free, uh, and, and stick to plant-based. But, you know, I can see that there might be a new player that has an impossible or beyond like product that uh, has a, a pretty significant amount of cell cultured meat, uh, what we might be calling hybrids today. And there's actually one person and company I'd like to call out uh, that is really doing this in a very interesting way, not with cell cultured meat, but with traditional meat, uh, is, is Better Meat Co. And what, so what they're doing is they're creating a product that gets mixed into traditional meat products. And the end result is more meat for less actual animal meat. Uh, in that end product. So I think we'll see that as we start to see more cell cultured meat companies and products come to market. So for companies like that, Better Meat Company, are they adding this cultured meat? Are they adding fillers or what sort of products are they adding to that meat to make it more meatier, I guess you could say? 
Yeah, so the the product from Better Meat Co. Uh, is their own product, uh, and I believe it's a microprotein. Um, and so they sell that as a B2B ingredient to okay. other companies, maybe even food service, that will be creating uh, meat products. So at the end of the day, you'll have to use a lot less uh uh, actual meat. And so you'll have, uh, you know, animals are taken out of that equation, so to speak. Now, would this kind of still have the same nutritional value there or would be even, I don't know, some like additional nutrition there or some negative nutritional impacts? Yeah, I think, you know, nutrition is quite an interesting topic. Uh, I'm no expert, but what I can say is that, you know, we do see that there's a very big difference between uh, nutritional profiles and specifically digestibility mm. of traditional animal uh, protein and plant-based proteins. And so uh, what we can see is that if you look at protein quality scores or what we are calling DIAS, um, I think it's D-I-A-A-S, um, the protein quality of plant-based proteins uh, even if you don't discuss the kind of complete protein or a complete amino acid profile, um, is is much lower from a scoring standpoint. So pea protein would score like a 0.62, whereas ground beef or lean ground beef would uh, score a 0.97. Mm. Now, um, you know, this is important because a lot of people are saying that, you know, to create a chicken, you would need so many calories in of animal feed to get one calorie out. Uh, but that one calorie that does come out from actual chicken is a lot of uh, a lot more high quality protein uh, that uh, that is, is is you can't really compare, right? And so I think that as we do start to see uh, more research and kind of data come out from a nutritional and digestibility aspect, we'll see that there's a fine balance. But what's exciting about this is that if we do kind of tap in to digestibility and also nutrition profiles, we'll be able to mix and match the best to create something that's even better than, uh, you know, for example, uh, the, the benchmarks, which are now traditional meat proteins. Yeah, that's very interesting, kind of talking about the ratio of like conversion for um, feed to feed, because I know, like from lowest to, to best, it's like, I don't know, cows, pigs, chicken, fish, and like for every pound of feed a fish eats, they gain a pound of meat or a pound of muscle. And so it's very interesting to kind of see how those interact with each other and how the proteins are and stuff like that. And kind of going off of the fish one, this is kind of a tangent. Um, I know different countries kind of have different diets, different proteins and stuff like that. So what's, what's kind of the whole thing with fish? Like are fish proteins, um, cultured fish proteins kind of being developed the same way? Yeah, so um, I, you know, I will say that I just spoke to somebody doing research on uh, cell cultured, actually mollusk. Um, oh, okay. Uh, today, and so I would say that you know, just as we are seeing companies that are working on uh, beef and chicken and other products, uh, there's also a lot of work being done uh, on the fish side of things. And so um, there's a there's a couple a couple com companies that have been out there for uh, a while. Uh, and this includes uh, wild type, which has a salmon sashimi product that actually mm. uh, really looks uh, um, amazing. And uh, we have uh, Blue Nalu, which is down in San Diego. And um, they're actually building a pretty large, or at least have debuted plans of a pretty large commercial uh, and scalability um kind of plan, which, which looks very interesting. And then you see some new players uh, come to the space. And so um, there's a company that just announced um, 
that um, uh, is called uh, uh, Blue Biosciences out of out of Germany. Um, and there's there's quite a quite a few other players coming to the space as well. That's so exciting. I can't wait to see like kind of how those things go. And I don't know, like I think I think culture meat like for sushi or like you're saying, sashimi would be perfect. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that works with like fried fish and stuff like that. But yeah, I, th- I think stuff like that's crazy. But um, kind of moving on. So oh, you- really quick, one, oh, yeah, one thing that was super fascinating about wild type um, uh, one of their, I believe, researchers uh, um, or maybe head of product development was speaking uh, at our last conference, and we actually debuted the product. And mm. um, a few folks from the audience got to try it. And I think the the biggest kind of takeaway uh, was that, you know, people said, oh, you know, one thing I was expecting was kind of this like fishy taste, right? Um, but it, it wasn't a very fishy taste. And the the representative from wild type said, Oh, well, here's a question. Like, have you ever had sushi that was like so fresh that you ate it like right after it was killed? You'll notice it doesn't have that fishy taste. Right. And so if you think about like, uh, from a culinary perspective, like, uh, quality of some of these products, we're going to be able to control so much such that, uh, you'll be able to to experience a sushi that, or a sashimi product, for example, um, that uh, that tastes like it came like right out of the water, and I, and I think that's going to be really, really interesting. Yeah, it, it sounds like consumers will have better experiences. Chefs will have better experiences preparing their food. Um, would stuff like this have a longer and better shelf life than normal? Uh, it, that totally depends. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could, you know, probably say that. Um, over time, because we are controlling the different inputs and aspects, right. you could have a longer shelf life. Um, but uh, but yeah, that to- that will totally depend, especially because, as I had mentioned, you are oftentimes, you know, mixing with other food grade ingredients. Um, so, you know, that could change things. Another thing that people talk about quite a bit is that because you're creating this in a much more controlled environment, there's less bacteria that comes from the slaughter and all sorts of things uh, when you are producing the products. And so there's much less uh, opportunities for any type of pathogens. Uh, and so you could have, for example, you know, we've discussed, you could theoretically have meat that doesn't even need to be refrigerated um, and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's quite an interesting uh, discussion. Yeah, it's so cool to see what it what this technology could bring to the table. I mean, like like we just said, you could have meat that you don't have to refrigerate. It could dramatically decrease kind of foodborne illnesses and contamination and stuff like that. And also with the fish thing, it can make your eating experience so much better. It can taste fresher, longer. It's wild. I can't wait to see where it goes. And kind of going off of that a little bit, you've got a podcast, Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. So what have been some some super like memorable episodes and leaders that you've interviewed that have really kind of helped you learn and realize that this industry is really changing the ball game. I think one of the, I guess, episodes that really uh, left a mark on me uh, was from Ingrid Newkirk, who is the founder of PETA, right? Mm. And um, you would expect that, you know, PETA is an organization that, um, if you're not familiar with them, they have pretty, I would say, jarring like advertisements out there, right? It's something that is almost like this shock factor. And when I was speaking to her, I, I kind of, you know, 
it almost like all clicked, right? In, in such a such an interesting way in that, well, one, I should say that although a lot of people that are a part of the animal welfare movement, they don't necessarily believe in cell cultured meat or even the adoption of plant-based meats because it's promoting meat culture. Uh, Ingrid and, and her team were very optimistic that this could be a really great solution. And, um, and it really kind of made me understand the perspective of um, how some of these organizations are working from an animal welfare perspective and also from an environmental perspective. I think that in the advertisements, you might see that, oh, it's very jarring or that, you know, everyone must become vegan right away. Um, but if you kind of dig into kind of what the organizations are doing, not just PETA, but other animal welfare organizations out there, it's this kind of common goal that we can achieve better as a society if we develop new technologies, if we change our mindset on diet, we'll become healthier, we'll have less suffering in the world, and that this is something that, that we can achieve. And, and I think um, that would be one episode that was um, quite exciting. I will say that there, there was another episode with um, Dan Lining. And um, so Dan Lining was actually the first episode that we had ever recorded. It ended up, I think, being episode two or three in terms of release date. But uh, we spoke to Dan before he had started a company. Um, he was starting to think about what kind of company to start. Uh, and now he has gone on to raise millions of dollars, is one of the largest cell cultured meat companies and, uh, and, and really considered a, a leader in, in the space. So I would say that, you know, seeing that over the last few years, people have been able to achieve so much uh, growth has, has really been inspiring. That's amazing. And I mean, do you think, especially you, you talk with all these leaders and stuff, has the pandemic impacted them at all? I had a lot of episodes where, uh, you know, we were just into the, the couple months of the pandemic. And I asked, I said, like, you know, what's happening? And uh, most of the response was, well, you know, we're still business as usual. You know, our mm -hmm. lab is a completely sanitized and maintained space. And so, you know, we're not necessarily worried about spreading any type of, you know, coronavirus here while we're doing our research. And, um, and so that, you know, I don't think has been too much of a, of a big impact. Um, and, and so I would say that now that things are, are starting to open up, um, we're starting to see more activity. Um, I think that also when you're looking at the research projects that do take a very long time, uh, you're going to hit bumps in the road. And, and I would say that, um, the industry has been very adaptive. You know, we saw a lot of conferences and meetups transition to online, just like any other industry. Um, and, you know, we didn't necessarily, you know, we as a cultured meat industry didn't necessarily have a lot of product at restaurants at the time. <laughs> now there are a couple of restaurants, but at the time, so those, those closures, although they affected many restaurants and, and business owners, I think the cultured meat industry was able to continue to move on. That's good to hear. And I was talking with a beef rancher yesterday, actually, and he kind of talked about how the pandemic really showed a lot of the issues of the food supply chain, especially meat processing, because there's so few processing and packing plants around the U.S. And so it seems like items like cultured meat can really take, I guess, really kind of help deregulate that whole industry and how few processing plants there are, because, I mean, you don't need these massive slaughterhouses and processing facilities and stuff like that. And so it seems like this would be a perfect way to kind of get in there and really kind of 
disrupt the meat market, it seems like. And especially with all with all of COVID and prices fluctuating and all that crazy stuff. Yeah. And I mean, as you're mentioning that, you know, one thing that I have noticed that has kind of shaken up, you know, biotech in, in general is that, you know, supply chain issues for new equipment, you know, has been, you know, maybe not as hard as, as getting a new Ford truck, but, yeah, but has true. been, but has been, uh, uh, you know, extended in terms of, um, you know, delivery times and, and things like that. But you're absolutely right. If we have um, some of these, I guess, you know, decentralized facilities in place producing meat, um, there's going to be different factors affecting uh, the supply chain. And like you mentioned, if we do see a future where uh, there's not one solution, but we have many solutions, that will also give us different opportunities to maintain any types of hits to any type of the, the supply chain. That's huge. I mean, I don't think that animal protein is just a solution or that plant-based protein is just a solution or that cultured meat is just a solution. I mean, we can have all three perfectly. I mean, if you want that meat experience and you're a vegetarian, you can go for plant-based meat. Or if you're regular, you can go for regular animal protein or cultured meat and still have that experience. So I'm very much looking forward to kind of seeing how the three work together and just kind of seeing where that goes. So it should be interesting. I can't wait. I'm going to binge some more of your podcast episodes to hear from some thought leaders and some industry leaders and just kind of what's going on with cultured meat. So I'm very excited to dive into some more of those episodes. Awesome. And if you have any additional questions or anything that pops up, definitely reach out. Deal. Well, Alex, man, I feel like I know a lot more about cultured meat than I did about uh, 40 minutes ago. So thank you so much, man. I hope everybody learned a thing or two when they were listening, but um, keep up the good work. If people want to learn more about you, if they want to listen to your podcast, or even better yet, if they want to buy your book, Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? Where can they go find all that stuff? Yeah. So the podcast is at futurefoodshow.com. Uh, and you'll be able to listen to it uh, pretty much anywhere you can listen to this show, which is everywhere. Yeah. Um, and uh, the book is at uh, the, probably the quickest way to find it is to go to hotdog.fyi. So FYI instead of .com, that's just hotdog.fyi, and you can check out the book. Well, sweet. Well, we'll also link all that in description, so it'll be a little bit easier to find. But um, Alex, thanks so much for coming on, man. Cool. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the Farm Traveler podcast. Be sure to check out all the links below for Alex's book and his podcast. If you're a longtime listener, thanks so much for your support. Consider sharing this episode with a friend, family member, coworker, or, you know, anybody that might enjoy podcasts. And if you're new here, consider subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast app or wherever you are listening from. We release new episodes every week and can't wait for you to hear more of our awesome interviews. Thanks so much, and we will see you in the next episode.